0: Today I'm with Dr Helen Swift, a university lecturer in me- medieval French and a fellow at St Hilda's College. Dr Swift, uh, I was wondering if you might introduce yourself and tell us about some of your research projects and how you got involved with medieval studies.
1: Um, my history, is my personal history with medieval French um, began as an undergraduate. Um, I was an undergraduate reading English and French and On the English side of my degree we did Old English in the first year um, and that just grabbed me as being a very different literary world. The idea of literature was very different, the idea of authorship, of what constituted a text. There's obviously a big question of the oral tradition and what that meant. Um, So I decided to follow that in the the French side of my degree as well. It developed from there. I was doing later medieval literature in my second year with um, a very enthusiastic tutor and it was really the enthusiasm of that tutor that developed my passion um, and that tutor became my master's supervisor and later my doctoral supervisor um, and medieval French became my thing from there on in. Um, And it was in particular the later medieval period that interested me Um, Medieval French is still, in some respects, an undiscovered country. There's a lot of texts that haven't been edited. Um, There's a lot of, therefore, very primary textual work still to be done. And the area that's had least attention in terms of critical studies has been the late 14th and the 15th century in particular, and also the late 15th going into the 16th century, which struck me as a particularly exciting area Um, because it's the period when you've got big cultural transitions happening, the transition from a manuscript culture to a print culture for example. Um, So I wanted to see what was going on in that area. And my main route in through my strand of research was looking at literary defences of women. Um, I'd been interested in gender in the medieval period. I'd studied um, a female writer, a woman writer from the beginning of the 15th century called Christine de Pizan who was writing in defense of women. Um, and what interested me in response to that was what was happening when male writers were writing in defense of women. And there were a number of male writers who could be identified as doing this in the, between the mid-15th and early 16th centuries. And I wondered what they were doing. Um, were they proto-feminists? Were they defending women because they thought women needed defending, that they had virtue that was being unjustly maligned? Um, or were more pragmatic reasons uh, behind it? Were they wanting to target a work at uh, a notable female patron and thought that praising women would be a good inroad, a successful way into court in that respect? Um, Or was it just a literary topos? Was it meaningless in that sense? Was it just a a rhetorical trope, something they could develop um, their rhetorical skill around and use for display? So I got in, as one might expect, there was a sort of combination of lots of factors influencing why these writers were were undertaking such works. Um, So I was wanting to piece together these individual texts and create something like a, a corpus, a collection of works that one could view together um, and start to trace patterns through, see what was what was at stake in these texts.
0: Great, thank you. So the, you, you mentioned uh, the defense of women, mm. and that has resulted in a, a recent publication, in, in a book called Gender, Writing, and Performance, Men Defending Women in Late Medieval France, 1440 to 1538. Could you elaborate more on, on that book?
1: Um, well, that book, I suppose, really encapsulates the most recent state of my thought in this area. Um, it grew out of my doctoral work. And is it's a book that both, it tries both to get back into what was going on in the medieval context, both in terms of what was being thought um, about women and also the material aspect of it, when these works were being published, were being produced in manuscript, produced in print, how were they circulating? Were they being illustrated? Was that any suggestion of how they were being interpreted? And what happens, for example, when a particular work passes from manuscript to print? Does that change its transmission? So it was a study that tried to be, as it were, culturally embedded in that respect. Um, but it also tried to, take, um, to use modern critical tools to a certain extent, given that one's dealing with defences of women, um, one also thinks, well, we're very familiar with what modern ideas of feminist thought are. Are these completely alien from what these medieval writers were doing? Are there any bridges, are there any ways in which modern literary feminist theory can be useful for tapping into what these writers were doing? For example, we're used to the idea of gender as being very flexible, that there is masculine and feminine. There are masculine and feminine characteristics, and these aren't fixed to the idea of what a woman is and what a man is, that there's a cultural aspect to gender. And I think it's perceptible that this, although my medieval writers weren't conscious of it in the same terms, weren't theorizing it in the terms that modern feminist theory has. They were dealing with some of those issues, for example, the language, the vocabulary they were using to talk about different characteristics of masculine and feminine and ways of trying to make, um, for example, valour a characteristic that didn't just correspond to what men did when they went off to pursue military endeavors, that it could be have a particular branding that made it a, a characteristic of, of women as well.
0: Very interesting. So you you look a lot at the language used and the li- linguistic forms?
1: Yes. I mean, it, one of the things that had been done on some of these defensive women texts was to produce kind of catalogues or overall surveys of the period and listing, or there were these texts that had something to do with the defense of women. What hadn't been done was any detailed textual study, um, and getting into what was going on within the texts, and in particular, um, how certain vocabulary choices around the idea of what women do and what men do could be quite significant.
0: Great. Could you tell us more about the material cultural aspect of the book?
1: Yes, this was an aspect of the book that particularly fascinated me, because it's a way of trying to get outside of the texts and into the real world, if you like, treating the writers and the patrons to whom they were targeting their work as historical individuals, and trying to work out what lay behind these different axes of communication. Were there political motivations um, behind a writer targeting his work at a particular patron? Was it being accompanied by a program of illustrations to promote a political agenda? Or when a book transferred into print, for example, were the illustrations that were put with it, the woodcuts? Were they just what a printer's shop happened to have hanging around, so you can't really make an argument about it in terms of interpretation? Or were they being chosen and positioned more strategically as a kind of marketing practice, a way of selling the book, for example, in connection with another that you're producing in the same series, so to speak, so a sense of some kind of marketing strategy going on.
0: Fascinating. Did you, did you look at all, or did, uh, maybe this is exactly what you're talking about, but e- uh, emblem literature. I don't know a whole lot about it, but it, uh, what, I, what I've read about emblem literature I think is fascinating. How, how, how does uh, this late medieval French, especially in aspects of the defense of Woman, uh, and emblem literature come together?
1: That's a very interesting question, um, because it touches on one of the, in a way, one of the fundamentals of my line of research, which has been crossing the boundary of 1500 in the sense of pushing medieval to around 1530, um, 1530, 1540, whereas conventional divisions of the period would have medieval end at 1500, and then we suddenly turn into the early modern or the Renaissance. And emblem books are often seen as being very much a phenomenon of the early Renaissance, um, and nothing to do with what was going on with medieval stuff. Um, but certainly, with um, there are there are certain, there are some possible links. I mean, there's the idea of what one's doing in the relationship between text and image, um, and so there are certainly possible connections to be explored.
0: <laughs> Maybe a future book. Yes. <laughs> Great.
1: Um, let's let's
0: move on to your current and future research uh, that you're you're working on. Imagination in late medieval France.
1: Mm. Um, this was I mean, my first book was very much corpus based in the sense that I was really interested by a group of texts and an argument grew out of that. Um, the second project is much more concept based in that the idea of imagination was something that had always interested me and it was something that came up at times in my research on particular defences of women, especially where dream vision literatures involved and what's going on when a dream vision um, is being represented and how does that relate to an idea of imagination. Um, there's been a lot of excellent scholarly work done on memory, um, memory medieval memory um, in recent years and obviously imagination and memory are not um, unrelated to each other. So that also spurred my interest in the imagination aspect of memory and imagination's relationship to memory. Um, so what I spe- the questions I was specifically asking myself were when my medieval writers, when medieval writers in the 15th century are using the word imagination, what are they meaning? Are they meaning imagination in a modern sense? My instinct was that they weren't and certainly imagination um, as a noun could just count for image, an image, a concrete object, rather than a mental faculty. So that was that question in terms of well, what were they meaning by imagination if they weren't meaning what I mean by imagination. And then a kind of corollary to that, namely, well, how were they expressing what I would think of as imagination? Is, my, is a modern concept of imagination anachronistic to what these writers were doing? Or were there certain frameworks, certain discourses they were using to talk about imaginative activity that one could identify? Um, And dream frameworks being one of these to articulate a sense of contemplating possibilities that are um, either promising or self-deluding or using facets of the mind in a way to conjure with different ideas.
0: So what are you finding so far?
1: Um, The corpus of texts I've been working on thus far have been a lot of dream visions to do with love. Um, There's a a late medieval French genre called the which basically means a narrative poem on the subject of love. And these are really hotbeds for a ferment of imaginative activity as there is typically a male first-person narrator who is contemplating his lady in various ways and using different devices of his mind or external devices such as contemplating a mirror and imagining her image in the mirror such that the mirror could be seen as a sort of metaphor for what's already going on in his mind and how much he's projecting onto this mirror the image he has of her internalised. And these are used in various convolutions that For a lot of these, lover narrators are clearly being set up as being self-deluding, wish-fulfillment fantasies that have a comic edge to them, but are nevertheless drawing on ideas around intellectual activity at the time, are drawing on a concept of what is possible for the mind to do. And then on on the other hand, instances where it's less comedy involved, but more some kind of... um, serious exploration is when you have instances of contemplative activity um, and therefore a sense of the imagination striving to push beyond um, what it's capable of in in earthly life and have some sort of mystical experience Um, and these in what one would class as secular works, so not looking at mystic writers as such but looking at in the same context of these vernacular writers dealing with um, secular love contexts how the language and activity of contemplation are being mobilised to, in a way, give some dignity to imaginative practises, to point them as being not all self-deluding, but that there are dangers in using the imagination and that therefore one has to be careful to use it in an appropriate way. To give one example of all that in action, I looked at um, mourning and the discourse of mourning going on and how that can be dangerous in that one can continue to feed off um, a virtual imagined image of the mourned love object, but also how the process of reimagining the lost beloved could be conceived as a sort of mourning work that is um, analogous to prayers for the dead that therefore service the soul of the departed. Um, So there can be a, a more elevated understanding of what the imagination can perform, as well as seeing the imagination as something that's at risk.
0: Going back to the uh, imagination and imaginative practices, you, you mentioned have some roots in dreams and visions. Mm. And you also alluded to uh, mysticism. I'm wondering what, how much are imaginative practices informed or rooted in um, Catholic mysticism?
1: It's a, Catholic mysticism certainly has a, um, an influential role. There's a lot of Augustinian thought informing what some of these late medieval writers are doing, um, and Augustinian type vocabulary crops up in the practices of um, contemplation and the idea of different um, levels, if you like, of imaginative activity. The extent to which the the Catholic mysticism is being used kind of wholesale, I'm less certain about, on the grounds that there's always a visual element maintained. The texts I've been working with haven't been ones where there is a transcendence of the visual. Whatever is being imagined is still in visual terms, which in strict, strict terms of mystical practice, is still keeping things down a level, it's not reaching beyond for the ultimate experience where you're supposed to go beyond what is visually seen, so that the visual always stays in play.
0: Great. Is there anything else on, on the morning bit that you'd like to, with the, the image, imagine, imagination and, and morning? You, you talked about the, the image of, of the departed is with, mm-hmm. is, continues to be with individuals?
1: or. Yes, I mean, there's a sense, does the, should the, the image of the beloved be something that is cultivated, that is revisited, if you like, in the mind? Quite often, an external image, like a portrait, is used to represent the idea of looking again upon the the, the face of the the beloved. Should that be something that's revisited, or is the revisiting of it a bootless pursuit? And some, in, in one text in particular, Martin Lefranc's Le Champion des Dames, which, given its title, The Champion of Ladies, is a text that I first came to through Defence of Women Literature, but it's a text that's 24,000 lines long. So there's an awful lot going on in it. And there is a section in that that develops imagination in the context of a defence of poetry, poetry understood as fiction, and therefore the use of fictions and fables to communicate. Lessons to communicate morals. So there does seem to be, um, at least to some extent, a tie in between imagination understood as a a sort of internal mental practice, a psychological practice, and literary practice. Um, So, literary imagination, which one wants to handle quite carefully because one's aware of literary imagination as being a sort of post romantic construction, Um, but there's a connection being made on some level at any rate.
0: So, in a, in addition to the projects you're working on with the Defense of Women and Imagination, you're also those are your, your individual monographs. Yes, but you're also working on some group network projects. Is that right?
1: Yes, um, I suppose as a an arts and humanities researcher, one has two different research lives. There is the um, the individual, in a way, solitary pursuit of writing one one's monograph or, or writing articles, which can also be collaborative. But there is also increasingly a culture of research groups, research networks for, for coming together around particular ideas. For example, one that I'm currently involved in is on obscenity in Renaissance France. And my role in that is to provide the section that's called preliminaire. Um, so the, the preliminaries to it, what was, what's feeding into Renaissance ideas of obscenity from the medieval end, so to speak. Um, And that's a major AHRC-funded research network, an international network, that's coming together in a a collective volume of essays. Um, And that's been very interesting for me uh, because it's been my first experience of collaboratively writing an article with someone else. In the sciences, one thinks of collaborative writing of articles as being the norm, um, whereas in the, the arts and humanities side, the actual writing process is usually something that one's doing individually so writing with a a colleague from France uh, where we weren't actually meeting up in person during this process but it was she was in Madrid at the time Um, and so there are lots of phone calls to phone booths in Madrid conferring about different bits of what we were writing Um, so that's been a really interesting process as well as being a very interesting topic around which to work and this experience of very productive research networks um, led me also to found a research group with, um, co-found it with a, a colleague here in Oxford, Sophie Marnet, on voices in medieval French narrative. Um, we would found that the idea of voice and speaking voice um, was something that's often looked at as a route to looking at other things, but in its own right what's going on with um, voices, whether, whether gender may be an issue, uh, whether Whether once talking about the relationship between the narrator's voice and characters' voices, how those differences are understood, uh, was an area we thought was was very worthy of exploration. So we founded just a a very small research group, just nine of us, combining both literary specialists and specialists in medieval French linguistics. So pooling our methodologies, really, um, to see how we look at voice, how we analyse voice. Um, in these narratives. The other major research network that I'm involved in at the moment is to do with online diffusion of texts, online dissemination of texts. Um, it's called um, prin The aspect of this project that I'm involved in, it's a project um, based largely at the University of Waterloo in Canada and the aspect I'm most involved in is with regards to one of the main texts of medieval French literature, the Roman de la Rose, the Romance of the Rose, um, which had a huge influence on English literature and is therefore the most well-known medieval French text. And there's a lot of um, work going on on later responses to the Rose as part of this online project. Um, So that's another collaborative venture that's developing what modern electronic technologies can do for medieval studies. Because in a way, the sort of fluidity that one associates with online editing practices, being able to um, view text side by side, being able to alter things very readily, um, those sorts of practices are quite faithful, in a way, to a medieval manuscript culture, where a sense of literary property was more fluid where scribes were copying and recopying works, adding bits, making their own insertions and interpolations, um, and therefore there's, there's a kind of very intriguing parallel, which means that modern electronic editing techniques can do quite a lot to service our understanding of medieval manuscript culture. Medieval wikis? Well, there was a, there was a major medieval um, encyclopaedia tradition and certainly a fair amount of annotation going on in terms of what's going on in the margins. So uh, so some some sense of a, a collaborative community in that respect.
0: Very interesting.
1: Um,
0: and if that weren't enough, all of these research projects, mm-hmm. uh, there's also a is, it a, is it a fairly new master's degree? Uh, it, there's a, a master's in medieval studies here at Oxford.
1: Yes, the interdisciplinary course, the MST in medieval studies, is, it began in 2007. um, It was our first year of operation and it's something that's been developing, growing for for quite a while um, with the um, enthusiasm of, of lots of different parties across medieval studies. Why an interdisciplinary masters course is particularly appropriate for medieval studies is I suppose because as a medievalist one is almost by nature interdisciplinary in that Um, from thinking about what I was saying about my first book earlier on. One's looking at um, a literary text, but that inevitably entails cultural, uh, therefore historical, concerns when one's looking at the question of transmission, how book history, how the history of book production was working, some elements of visual studies, therefore art history, when you're looking at manuscript illustrations. So interdisciplinarity is a very natural a natural part of working in the medieval period and therefore an interdisciplinary masters course um, seemed an obvious development of that um, and it's, it's been bringing together a really interesting and varied diverse group um, of students wanting to apply for the course uh, whether they be coming out of um, an undergraduate background where they've done some medieval and developed a taste for it in history or English or modern languages um, or whether it's something they're coming to via a different route or even at a different stage, um, stage in their, in their professional development. So that's been a very fruitful development for medieval studies. And there's also helped bring together us as researchers um, in the discipline. And we founded an annual medieval studies lecture where we have a, a guest speaker come and give a, a plenary lecture and also do um, a research seminar and a graduate workshop. Um, so really embedding together both master students' work as they start to develop some um, sense of academic research and established researchers um, coming together to have some kind of um, collaboration.
0: Great. Thank you very much for uh, being with us today. Thank you very much. Is there, is there a, a final plug, a final advertisement you'd like to make for, for that master's?
1: Um, I can just say www.medieval.ox.ac.uk, which is for the master's course, but also um, a showcase for everything that's going on in all the different medieval subjects um, at Oxford.
0: Thank you, Dr.
1: Swift. Thank you.